Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of PAS FML, the only podcast run by an actual, real-life, current PA student. That's me. I'm your host, PAK, and today's episode, we are actually going to be taking a pretty good dive into uh, both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Uh, heavier content, of course, on type 2 diabetes because, A, that's pretty much like the third most common thing you you may see out there in the real world. Um, so just as an update for anybody who cares why it's been like six we- weeks or so since uh, I last made an episode, um, I finished up my uh, fourth rotation doing um, legit family med, uh, and it was cool. Um, to have some patient continuity, uh, but it was not cool because people were coughing in my face. And that, turns out, uh, is really annoying. Um, But anyway, uh, I saw a lot of good things, including diabetes, um, but also, and I think I've said this before, like the three main chronic um, conditions that patients either present with because they've got something going on with it or, you know, they come in because they've got a weird rash and I just happen to look at their chart and I'm like, oh, look at that. Like most people have one, if not more, of these three things and that is hypertension, um, hyper um, uh, lipidemia, and then diabetes type 2 usually. So anyway, so I wanted to talk about um, the third one, diabetes, because I've already done episodes on hypertension and hyperlipidemia, and they are wildly successful. You guys are just drinking all the things uh, on those on those two topics. So that's cool. So that tells me that you guys really like the um, review information. Um, and so we're going to do that again for diabetes today. So um, f- what final update before we get going. I actually have a decent amount to talk about in type 2 diabetes because after my family medicine rotation, I went out and I'm currently on my fifth rotation, and that is actually in an endocrinology office. So way cool because pretty much all I'm seeing are patients with either type 1 or type 2 diabetes. So I am learning a ton, and I'm going to share a handful of these pearls with you that I've been learning about how do you actually take care of type 2 diabetes. So, of course, we're going to cover the stuff that the pants wants us to know. So we're definitely going to do that. But this is also meant for people who are going to go into primary care and want to know what the endocrinologist's office actually does with your patients because, like, maybe you should start doing it because there's not a lot of endocrinologists out there. So uh, that's the focus where we're going. Uh, let's let's dig in. Actually, post-production pre-announcement. We're just going to do type one in this one. Sorry about that, but I turns out I just had too much information to share. So rather than bog us down with a huge like hour and a half uh, episode here, we're going to split it up. So here's type one, type one diabetes. Did I make that clear? Okay, so we're going to begin with type 1 diabetes, and primarily this is all information that is uh, like directly pants-related, so I'm going to try not to bog you down too much with what we actually do to manage type 1 diabetes from the endocrinology perspective, um, because none of that's going to be on the pants. 
Um, and essentially, the recommendation from the experts uh, are these two things. Every single person with type 1 diabetes needs to be managed by an endocrinologist, and they should have a continuous glucose monitor. I'm not going to go into anything else about those two things other than just know that if somebody comes to your primary care office and they say that they're type 1 diabetic, your very next question should be, who's your endocrinologist? Uh, if they don't have one for some weird reason, refer them out. Otherwise, um, that's pretty much what we're going to do um, for uh, type 1 diabetes. So um, let's go in to talk about what the pants wants you to know for type 1 diabetes. And essentially, um, the only the only expert opinion I'm going to give on this is how to diagnose it, um, because it is actually wildly misdiagnosed, meaning people are called type 2 diabetics when they're actually type 1, or people are type 1 diabetics, and they're called, wait, how does that work? <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, people who are type 2 are incorrectly diagnosed as 1 and vice versa. Um, so uh, I'm going to spend more time talking about how to actually correctly diagnose them, uh, and then we'll get into some of the pants stuff. So um, type 1 diabetes, 90% of these people are due to some sort of autoimmune, autoimmune issue. And so th this means that they have antibodies to usually either insulin or the isolate cells um, from the pancreas. Um, so 90% of that is autoimmune. So what kind of things are you going to check for then if it's autoimmune? Uh, well, the main one that hopefully you all should be thinking of your head is this thing called the GAD-65. So GAD-65 antibodies. Um, and the interesting thing about GAD-65 is that it's inherited. And here's, par here's part of the uh, explanation from the experts is that not only is GAD-65 inherited, but even if people are positive, that may just mean that they're a carrier. So if you test your patient because you're worried that they've got type 1 diabetes and you check their GAD-65 antibodies and those come up positive, well, guess what? That patient actually could just be a carrier because crazy enough, even in, po even in positive patients, that patient only has a one-third chance that they are actually type 1 diabetic. They could be a carrier. So the patient actually has a two-thirds probability, a 66% chance that even with positive GAD-65 antibodies, they are not actually type 1 diabetic. So we really don't stop there in, in the endocrinology suite. And this is where a lot of the problem um, where people are falsely being labeled type 1 comes into play. Somebody comes up with a, with a positive GAD-65 antibody, and all of a sudden we're going, oh, they're type 1. Not necessarily case. So, okay, great, PAK. You just told me that I can't trust GAD-65 antibodies. Uh, anti antibodies. What should I do? Excellent question. You actually need to check this thing called the C-peptide. And hopefully this was covered. I know it was covered um, pretty extensively in my... 
uh, training. Um, but the C-peptide, which is basically just a measure of whether or not a patient actually makes insulin. So if you think back to, well, what causes type 1 diabetes, well, it's the antibodies, whatever antibodies they have, and we'll get into the other antibodies in a quick minute, but essentially the antibodies are either killing the pancreas, so the pancreas is no longer making insulin, or it's killing the insulin itself. So if a C-peptide hangs with insulin, we would expect true type 1 diabetics to have an exceptionally low C-peptide. So fine, go ahead and get the GAD65 antibodies, but why don't you go ahead and check for the thing that's actually going to tell you if they are type 1 or not. So this is a C-peptide. So normal range for the C-peptide essentially is anything over 1.0 is considered normal. So a C-peptide above 1.0 is considered normal. So, uh, and then the area in which we're going to call somebody type 1 is below 0.1. So if you come back uh, and the C-peptide returns as less than 0.1, which is how it shows up in ours, we don't get an exact measurement. It literally just says less than 0.1. Um, that's an exceptionally low C-peptide, and then you can go ahead and call your patient as having type 1 diabetes. Um, so for those of you who are better at math than I am, you may have noticed that the two values I gave you above 1.0 and less than 0.1, uh, there's a gray area there in the middle. So essentially between 0.1 and 0.9, is considered um, a gray area. And that is so, that's something that even kind of stumps the experts. So I'm not going to go too much into that right now. Just know that there is this gray area. And essentially, this is kind of where that type 1.5 diabetes people live. Um, some universities like our program called it LADA, or latent autoimmune diabetes in adults, LADA, LADA. Um, and LADA is literally the exact same word for type 1.5. So um, obviously type 1.5 is not a lot of people, uh, but I probably see it at least once or twice a week um, in the endocrinology office. So anyway, there's your numbers. Above A C-peptide above 1.0 is considered normal. Um, and essentially, if you're worried about the patient having diabetes at that point, but you check their C-peptide C peptide, and it's 1.0 or above, I mean, I've seen a C-peptide as high as like 8, and I've only been in the chronology office for like a month now. Um, that's a shit ton of C-peptide, and that patient is type 2 diabetes, not type 1. Um, so above 1.0 is normal aka type 2 diabetes, if you're worried that they've got one of the things. Um, and then below 0.1 C-peptide is where you can actually say, okay, you definitely aren't making any insulin, therefore you are definitely type 1 diabetes. Um, so let's go back and talk um, a little bit about what is this thing called LADA. Uh, again, if you uh, one point, type 1.5 diabetes. Essentially, all this means is that the patient is on their way to having type 1 diabetes. Um, so essentially what we want to do, again, refer these people out to endocrinology. 
Um, but essentially, all we do at the endocrinologist's office is check their C-peptide and run their antibodies. And I'm going to get into the other antibodies right after this. Um, all we do is is run their antibodies and check their C-peptide um, and just watch it and just literally wait for them to become type 1 diabetics. For some people, maybe that's six months. And other people, who knows, it could be six years. I haven't seen it just yet. I haven't been there long enough. But um, essentially, type 1.5 people are on their way to diabetes type 1, um, which is sad um, for them to hear, but uh, that's what it is. Um, so let's talk about some of the other antibodies. We already covered GAD65, which and which for me was the main one um, that I remembered hearing about in school, um, but we can also check insulin antibodies and also is- isolate cell antibodies. So essentially, here are the labs you need to run in order to confirm a diagnosis of diabetes type 1. And you got to check them all. Um, obviously, you check the C-peptide. We just talked about that. Like if you check none of none of all of them, C-peptide is the one to do. But also you want to find out like why aren't they making any insulin, right? If C-peptide is a measure of how much insulin a patient makes and it comes back abnormally low at 0.1, the next question you should be asking yourself is, okay, why do they have diabetes? So check the antibodies. GAD65, which again is inherited, um, and the patient, even if it's positive, the patient actually has a better chance that they're not type 1 diabetes, right? They've got a 33% chance that they're actually type 1. Um, The reason we still check that, though, even if it doesn't tell us the complete picture, is because it's inherited, they can, of course, pass it off to any offspring. So their their kids would want to get checked. Um, And actually, this is the... um, this is a phenomenon for how uh, type 1 diabetes can actually skip generations because maybe the parents are carriers and then all of a sudden you get a kid who's type 1 and you go, oh, well, yeah, remember granny was type 1 as well. So this is how this is how it can happen. If you get a kid who's diagnosed um, type 1 diabetes and neither mom or dad is, well, probably, well, both of them were, mom and dad were carriers. Okay, so that's GAD65, inherited, check the kids. Uh, Next antibody is insulin antibody, uh, and this is actually not inherited. And the crazy thing that my preceptor told me was that insulin antibodies can come from a virus. So you can get sick with some dumb virus, and then all of a sudden, you can have antibodies that start attacking your insulin, and now you're on your way to type 1 diabetes. I mean, like, maybe these are the people who were catching it type 1. I mean... Anyway, that just, that blew my mind when I heard that you could get insulin antibodies after you have a virus. So that sounds like a terrible way to get it. But anyway, um, so insulin antibodies. And then the third antibodies you want to check are the isolate cells. Wait, is it islet? Oh, God, I should know how to pronounce that. It's spelled I-S-L-E-T. And for anybody who knows me, you are probably rolling on the floor right now thinking, I can't believe she doesn't know how to pronounce that word. Um, but anyway, I think it's isolate cells. Anyway, there's your three antibodies plus a C-peptide. Check them all the first time. That's the only way that you can actually formally diagnose somebody as type 1 diabetes. And that's something that the endocrinologist's office wishes that you as a primary care provider knew because those are simple blood tests and you can order them and have a much better idea um, for what you're actually dealing with. Um, okay, so uh, again, you don't need to check all those in a, all of those four things once the patient is diagnosed, essentially, except for the C-peptide. 
Um, and then just another pearl, the C-peptide can actually be artificially low if the patient's blood glucose at the same time is super, super high. Um, and so, again, this is another outlet for how sometimes people get misdiagnosed because maybe they're type 2, um, but because their blood sugar is out of control because they're new type 2, so their blood sugar is sky high, you check their C-peptide and their C-peptide is low and all of a sudden you're thinking that that patient is now type 1 diabetes. But that's not how it works, unfortunately. Unfortunately, it turns out they're actually just type 2 and their blood sugar is super high. So, um, you can periodically recheck the patient's C-peptide um, once their blood sugar, like once their blood glucose gets better managed, um, because then that'll actually tell you what their true C-peptide level is. Um, so again, most of this is not going to be on the boards. Again, that was just the expert opinion behind the scenes from this endocrinology rotation that I'm on. Um, so... All of that is just how to be a pre better provider. The only things from the review books that I found on what you guys actually need to know um, as far as like antibodies go, all they had was insulin, GAD65, and isolate cell antibodies. Um, and also that a C-peptide level of low or, um, or low, uh, sorry, low, a low C-peptide level um, with concomitant uh, hyperglycemia would indicate um, uh, a diagnosis of type 1. So like really that's it as far as like how do you diagnose the thing. Um, so that's how to diagnose type 1 diabetes. Now essentially everything from here on out um, is pretty much just what you need to know for the board. So let's talk more about that. Okay, signs and symptoms of type 1 diabetes. Um, usually the presentation is in children, um, especially before the age, uh, or um, especially in school age, and, and or near puberty. Um, puberty, and these kids have either a normal or they're underweight. Um, and the signs and symptoms are frequent peeing, frequent drinking, drinking, frequent eating, fatigue, and weight loss. So fancy words are polyuria, polydipsia, polyphagia, and then of course fatigue and weight loss. Uh, a lot of times um, on the boards, um, the presentation could be a kid who presents as they are in DKA, so diabetic ketoacidosis, uh, and the signs and, some, some signs and symptoms of that are fruity breath, nausea, vomiting, dehydration, rapid respirations, and hypotension. Um, so those are DKA. The fruity breath should pretty much give it away. How do you treat? I'm not going to go into big details here, but essentially these people need to be admitted to the hospital or even the ICU. And the number one first thing you do to somebody in DKA is treat them with IV fluids, usually isotonic solutions, so normal saline or um, actually when I went through my hospital rotation, even the hospitalists like LR. So anyway, an isotonic solution. That's the answer. First step in management of somebody in DKA, isotonic fluids, NS or LR. Um, also, as a quick aside here, um, if the patient's corrected serum sodium is high, so recall that a really high blood sugar level will actually lead to a dilutional hyponatremia. Um, so it 
so the, essentially the patient's sodium levels look like they are low, but that's only because their blood sugar is so high because all of that blood sugar causes an osmotic shift from the intracellular space to the extracellular spa- cellular space. So when you pull the blood, um, it looks like the sodium is low, but that's only because all the sugar pulled a whole sh- bunch of water in with it as well. Um, so the sodium is going to look low, um, but that's what we call a dilutional hyponatremia. Um, so there's a calculator. You can use MD calc to figure out what the patient's sodium level actually is. Um, and then you go off of that number. So only then after you've corrected it, if the serum sodium is still high, um, then then you know you actually need to um, reduce your isotonic solution to like half normal saline, for instance, because you're giving them too much sodium. Uh, okay. Um, and then also we also give um, insulin, um, of course, because this person is type 1 diabetic and the whole reason that they got into DKA in the first place was because they didn't have either insulin on board or they didn't know they were diabetic. Um, So we always give insulin and we always give it via IV IV, um, because we want to guard against accidental overdose. So super smart there, not going to go into any further details. Um, Next up, how do you diagnose type 1 diabetes? And this is actually the same uh, diagnosis criteria um, for type one or for type two. Um, so I'm going to say it here and then I'm going to say it again, um, when we talk about type two diabetes, cause it's super important. Um, this was something that I kept running into in my primary care. Like we'd get like a random, uh, like CMP on somebody for whatever reason. Um, and it would come back that they were, oh, because we would get, um, fasting, we would get fasting labs for them because we always wanted a fasting lipid panel. Um, and so in primary care, when you like you, it's, it's just like the normal thing for you to get a CBC, a CMP, and then a lipid panel. That's just part of good primary care. Um, but in order to grab the lipids, you need them to be fasting. So most patients just go ahead and do a fasting, um, lab draw on all the things that they need to get done. So essentially when the CMP would come back, it was fasting. And so we'd be able to see their fasting blood sugar. And so many times in my patients who weren't previously diagnosed as diabetic, um, either way, would come back with a high fasting glucose. And I remember I asked my preceptor a handful of times, like, uh, should we like do anything about that? And the answer was usually not really. Um, and that was because for one of these reasons, for one of these two reasons, is that you actually, in order to diagnose diabetes, you actually have to get a fasting blood sugar twice, two separate ones. So like an initial one doesn't necessarily mean anything. So even though we were running labs for various other things, technically in order to be complete, we should have let them know and I'm sure we probably did. It feels like a lifetime ago, even though it was just like a month ago. Um but uh, officially, you need to, you need two fasting labs, like on a CMP, to come back. Um, and the number that you're looking for is uh, like in terms of what's considered high is over 126. So a blood sugar level on fasting labs, meaning like a fasting complete metabolic panel, um, or no basic, I don't think gets it. So I think it's got to be complete. Um, so a CMP um, fasting glucose over 126 is how you're going to be worried about 
um, diabetes, either type 1 or type 2. So that has to be two separate fasting. And I don't know, good rule of thumb, maybe two weeks or so. I don't know. That's just a guess. Uh, Okay, so that's one. Another way to do it is with a hemoglobin A1C of 6.5. So those first two things are kind of what we really use um, in the real world. Um, but any any one of these four ways um, can do it can do it can like clinch the diagnosis. Um, so hemoglobin A1C of 6.5, two separate fasting glucose levels above. Do you remember 126? And then moving on, a random blood gl- glucose level of above 200, but uh, caveat here, they have to have diabetic symptoms again. So go back to what we said a little while ago about the symptoms. They were all like the polys, the three polys, polyuria, polydipsia, polyphagia, plus weight loss. Usually these kiddos, right, we're talking about type 1 diabetes still. So these kiddos are losing weight or they're either normal normal weight if they got lucky enough. Um, so they have to have some of those symptoms, uh, along with a random blood glucose of over 200. Um, Really, though, I I don't think that the random glucose is a good one, because what if the patient ate recently? And yes, I mean, I guess they're trying to get at is that even if you ate birthday cake recently, your blood sugar shouldn't, in theory, be over 200. Your body should just work to keep it low. So maybe that's what they're getting at there. But um, we don't, we we as an endocrinology people really don't use the random blood glucose for diagnostic purposes. It's pretty much the hemoglobin A1C. Um, and then we also, of course, look at the two separate fasting. But there is an official fourth way to diagnose diabetes, type 1 or type 2, and that is with a two-hour oral glucose tolerance test with a blood glucose of greater than 200. So that's a two-hour uh, OGTT over 200. And then I will sidebar here and remind all of us um, that th- there's a different standard for gest- gestational diabetes that they extend out to three hours. So when you're pregnant, you get um, like one of the few things that becomes lax for you because <laughs> um, everything else we tighten up. Um, but you get extended from a two-hour OGTT to a three-hour OGTT. So um, difference between gestational versus uh, just regular diabetes. And actually, I think when I took the practice boards last winter, uh, that question was actually uh, like the question of how do you diagnose diabetes was actually on there. And the foil was a three-hour OGTT, which I was like, well, that's shady. Because um, of course, we weren't talking about gestational diabetes in the question. So I was like, but that's that blew my mind. Anyway, Um, All right, so four different ways that you can diagnose either type 1 or type 2 diabetes. Um, Most commonly, hemoglobin A1c over, what, do you remember, over 6.5. How about um, two separate fasting glucose levels above what? 126. Random blood glucose level and the two-hour OGTT are thankfully at the same level. So those are over 200. Okay, Um, so that's how you can diagnose diabetes. Moving on, Um, we're going to talk about two 
two topics that like totally confused me the first time I went through them. And now that I've had a little bit more time to deal with them, and I actually had patients come through my office this week talking about them. So they're a little more solidified. um, And hopefully I can help you out. So we're going to talk about the dawn phenomenon versus the Samoji effect. And the Samoji is spelled a really weird way. Um, It's S-O-M-O-G-Y-I, Samoji effect and the dawn dawn phenomenon. I actually had two patients come through the office last week, and both of them, of course, were type 1s, and both of them were like, yeah, I've got this gnarly dawn phenomenon, and they wanted help managing it. So um, turns out it's a thing, and some like highly tuned in patients actually know like the buzzword. So like... It's a real thing, the dawn phenomenon, and some patients will actually know about it. So the, the, the reason that you need to know the difference between them is that they're actually treated differently. Um, so that's annoying. But the reason why I got them so confused when I was first learning about them back in lecture was because essentially the patient wakes up with high blood sugar. This is what happens. And that's what happens in both of them. So like, okay, patient wakes up with high blood sugar. Great. We already know that they've got type 1 or Two diabetes. Actually, I don't know if this happens in type two. Yes, it must. Um, but uh, we're talking about them in type one. So, patient wakes up with high blood sugar, and the reason why you need to figure out again which one of these two things is happening is because you're going to treat them differently. So, the dawn phenomenon, the the mnemonic that I came up with to help me remember is the dawn phenomenon is something that's totally natural, right? The dawn as in like the sunrise, as in like that's totally natural, that's totally a thing that's going to happen and we expect it to happen. So this is normal blood sugar until about 2 to 6 or 8 a.m. when blood sugar normally rises, right? So there's the normal. Dawn is part of nature. The natural thing to happen is for everybody's blood sugar to rise a little bit starting around 2 a.m. and going until about 6 or 8 a.m. And the reason why this happens is because there is um, the patient um, being diabetic has decreased insulin sensitivity, but there's a nightly surge of these other hormones going on. And collectively, they're called counter-regulatory hormones. And they're actually kind of a big deal because there's like I don't know, maybe at least four main ones that I could find um, in my reading. Um, but there were four main ones, um, and they all, they're they called counter-regulatory because they literally counteract the effects of um, insulin. So, you know, insulin's main purpose is to bring down blood sugar. Well, these counter-regulatory hormones do the exact opposite. They raise um, blood sugar levels. Um, and the, so the main ones are um, glucagon, epinephrine, um, cortisol, and growth hormone. And those last two are, are uh, like the biggest culprits, I guess, for um, or the main, the main counter-regulatory hormone. So it's essentially a cortisol surge and a growth hormone surge that happens, again, anywhere from 2 to 6, 8, to 6 or 8 a.m., um, and because they are counter-regulatory hormones from insulin, they do the exact opposite. They raise blood sugar. So this is a totally normal thing that happens, right? The dawn, the sun rising is natural. So this is a totally normal thing that happens. Um, and uh, again, the result is that the patient will wake up with hyperglycemia with raised blood sugar. So the treatment for this is that we actually need to give them more nighttime insulin. Um, and I'm not going to go in how to do that. Um, but just know that in type one diabetics, if you go all the way back to the beginning of this 
episode when I said two things you need to know about type 1 diabetics. One, they need to be managed by endocrinology. And two, they really should have a continuous glucose monitor. If these people actually have a continuous glucose monitor, you can actually set their machine to give them more insulin like whenever their dawn phenomenon kicks in. Um, like I said, it's a real thing. And that is legitimately what we did with the patient because her con- her continuous glucose monitor or her CGM actually like literally takes a reading like every five minutes of what her blood sugar level is. So we could actually see the time that she starts ticking up in the middle of the night while she's asleep. And we increased her insulin at that point, like it, which was crazy. So um, anyway, so we're going to treat the dawn, dawn phenomenon with... Uh, an increase in insulin, or tell the patient not to eat carbs before they go to bed, because of course, that's only going to raise their blood sugar as well. Um, So that's the dawn phenomenon. Uh, Again, something totally natural, um, but it's a patient wakes up with high blood sugar. So we want to give them more insulin before they go to bed and tell them don't eat sugar before you go to sleep. The other one, the Samoji effect, um, is unnatural. And this is terrible, and hopefully you can just remember that uh, the the dawn phenomenon is the more natural one. Um, but this one, when I was trying to think of a mnemonic for it, I always try to tie it with the name. And so the Samoji, because it's due to unnatural nocturnal hypoglycemia, so the patient is going low. Um, right, which that didn't happen in the dawn phenomenon. Um, they had normal blood sugar, and then all of a sudden it raised in the dawn phenomenon. But in the Samoji effect, they have an unnatural nighttime hypoglycemia. And so the way I did that in my brain was, oh, the Samoji, you just go low, G, which is terrible. And I hope you're laughing. But um, uh, anyway, so the Samoji is because you go low, G. Um, so the patient goes low and because of that, the body freaks out primarily because of growth hormones. So not that I don't think that's going to be on the boards, but, um, one of those counter-regulatory hormones senses that the patient is having hypoglycemia and so they kick them into high gear. So again, the result is that the patient wakes up with high blood sugar, um, and again, this is based on hormones, but the problem with, well, not the problem, but how do you, how you treat this then is totally different from the dawn phenomenon because the problem with the Samoji is you went low, G. So if the problem is that the patient is going low, you're not going to want to do anything like give insulin to make the patient go low again. So you actually um, need to decrease the amount of bedtime insulin that's given or you can actually have a snack before bed, right? Because again, the problem in Samoji is that the patient went low. Um, And so you're going to want to do things to make sure that they're not going low, i.e. decrease their insulin or actually tell them to have a snack. So that's the difference between the Samoji effect and the dawn phenomenon. Um, And like I said, there are two legitimate things. Uh, And I do also think I had a question on one of them one of them showed up on the practice boards that I did and it was annoying and I totally got the question wrong um so you're welcome for getting that question right now you should never um now you should know um okay so moving on um how are we going to treat type 1 diabetes um uh essentially we have like treatment and monitoring um protocols um again 
uh, hemo- ba- all the way back to hemoglobin A1C, which of course is just the average blood sugar levels from about the previous two to three months. And the whole reason why we do um, a blood sugar, or excuse me, why why we do an A1C every three months is because it's tied to uh, our red blood cells, obviously, right? Um, and red blood cells, their average lifespan is about 90 days. Um, so officially, um, we, A, insurance will only pay for hemoglobin A1Cs every three months. Um, but again, now you know why it's done three months. It's because that's about the average span of, of um, a red blood cell. Um, and then, of course, officially, it's a little more weighted. That number is a little bit more weighted to based on like what the patient did, you know, like what their blood sugar was like in the past month just because like that's more of the red blood cells that are still circulating. But again, like two month old red blood cells are there, three month old red blood cells are there. Um, but it's a little bit better snapshot of what they've been doing for two months. Um, but officially three months total. Um, so hemoglobin A1C treatment goal, we want this below 7.0%. So treatment goals for actually both type 1 and type 2 diabetes is a hemoglobin A1C below 7.0. And the whole reason we say below 7.0 is because we did a whole bunch of studies and that's where we found that people um, decrease their risk of diabetic complications. Um, So the song and dance that my preceptor preceptor always gives our patients is, look, we want you under 7.0 hemoglobin A1C because at that level, you are not outrightly um, putting your eyes in danger, so you shouldn't go blind. You're not putting your kidneys in danger, so you shouldn't have kidney failure. And you're not putting your nerves in in danger, so you're keeping alive the tips of your toes and the tips of your fingers. Um, if you if you like your if you like your big toe, keep your num- keep your A one C under seven That's the best way to keep it. And people usually laugh about that. Um, so hemoglobin A one C below seven, um, which according to what the pants wants you to know, it's just the big picture overall, how are we doing with their glucose control? Um, And then most type ones will need to check their blood sugar almost excessively. Again, this is another reason why a continued glucose monitor is exceptionally helpful for them. Um, uh, So the goals for what their blood sugar should be is if they're fasting, which officially, I guess, happens at around eight hours. We call that a fast. Um, So like first thing in the morning, essentially, um, blood sugar should be under 130. Um, And then at about one and a half to two hours after they've had something to eat, blood sugar should be um, under 180. Um, And there's a whole bunch of other parameters that I could go into, but I will save you that because that's all that Pants wants you to know. Uh, Okay, so we did type 1 diabetes. I hope you hung in there. Let's dive in and actually talk about what in the hell you're supposed to do with your type 2 diabetics and what does the Pants want you to know about them. Actually, just kidding. We are going to wrap it up here with type 1 diabetes because having the type 2 diabetes talk after this was just getting really, really long. So we're going to, we're going to cut it here um, w- with the exception of uh, two things. Uh, one, I need to humbly uh, correct myself uh, because I was pronouncing... I-S-L-E-T, I was pronouncing that word like a idiot 
uh, and I was pronouncing the S. But guess what? I looked it up, and it's totally not pronounced with the S. So I'm sure half of you are like, uh, yeah, P-A-K, I definitely knew that. Yeah, well, it left my brain. Um, so we're going to pronounce that word eyelet. So again, eyelet. All those times I pronounced it wrong. I'm so sorry. It's called the eyelet cells. Do not be an idiot like I was. Your attendings and preceptors and patients um, will maybe know that you're an imposter. And that's, we don't want that. So eyelet cells. Um, and then just for good measure, I wanted to clarify that essentially when I was reading, I was like, what, what again is the difference between an islet cell and a beta cell? Like what, what's the relationship there? So forgive me if you know this, but I'm going to say it for the people in the back and for myself who needed a refresher. Basically the islet cells are just specialized cells of the pancreas and they're so named like islands because they're just little clusters of special spots. And all they do is is secrete a special given hormone. And so essentially the, the beta cell is a type of islet cell. And of course, the beta cell's job is to secrete insulin. Contrast that with like the alpha cell cells, uh, which secrete glucagon. So not that that's necessarily going to be on the pants, I don't know, maybe, maybe in some weird voodoo world, it's on the pants and you score yourself some sweet, sweet pants points for it. In such a case, you're welcome. Uh, otherwise, you can just impress people, your friends, the next cocktail party, you know, things like that. Uh, so anyway, recap, I was an idiot. Don't pronounce the S. It's islet cells of the pancreas that, sec that secrete insulin. Uh, moving on. Speaking of insulin, I'm just going to do a super quick recap of what the pants has about what it might want you to know about insulin, which I really don't think there's going to be a question on it. But again, for the sake of completeness and for the sake of your own knowledge, just in case you're actually listening to this, because I don't know, maybe you're trying to be a better provider for your type 1 diabetics. I don't know, various reasons. Uh, so let's talk real quick about the different types of insulin for um, type 1 diabetics. This also goes for type 2, but again, because we're going to put that in a different episode, we're, maybe we'll talk about that later. Um, so different types of insulin. Uh, I'm going to start with the first two, um, which is, this is just how I put it in my head, um, that are the rapid acting or fast acting. And these are the ones that are given with a meal because you're going to eat food because you're super hungry and, or your patients are. And so we need something that works quickly. So the two that I'm talking about here are, um, generic names are Lispro and Aspart. Aspart? I don't know. Nobody calls it that, though. Uh, in the real world, everybody calls it either Humalog or Novalog, which is kind of nice because they both end in logs there. But those are the rapid acting or insulins that are only taken when a patient's going to eat food. Um, because, of course, the insulin needs to be in the body to shuttle all the energy into the cells. So if a patient doesn't eat, they're essentially not taking these rapid acting insulins. And I say that they're rapid acting because their their onset of action is within five to fifteen minutes. So in the endocrinology office, we tell them definitely no more than fifteen minutes, um, and like thirty minutes is even way too late. I actually had a patient earlier this week who was taking his insulin before he left the house, and then driving thirty some minutes to work, and then getting to work and doing a handful of things, and he actually wasn't eating until at least forty five minutes to an hour later. And the only reason he was doing that was because he was getting shaky and sweaty, and 
he just never, I guess, put two and two together. So it's a good thing that we check on these people at least every three months or so. Uh, so anyway, so he needed to take his either Novolog or Humalog, uh, generic names again, Lispro or Aspart. Um, he needed to take those no more than 15 minutes before he eats the meal because that is the rapid-acting um, uh, mealtime insulin. Um, okay, and then again, just for your edifications, like I had no idea what was considered like a small amount of insulin I had or versus large. I had no idea. So just for your knowledge, um, about six units is considered a small amount of insulin for a rapid-acting um, rapid onset, uh, a moderate dose is around 15 to 20, probably closer to 20. And then a, a whole bunch of rapid acting insulin is at like 50 plus. Um, and it's crazy, but I see it every now and then these patients come through and they're taking like 50 plus, yeah, like 70 amounts of insulin, 70 units of insulin uh, with each meal, which is insane. But it happens because everybody's different and we owe a lot of the variability to various degrees of insulin resistance. So that's another uh, party trick. Um, okay, moving on. Um, the book wants us to know um, about the about this next one, which I've literally never used in the month and a half that I've been at the endocrinology office. But again, I'm going to say it just so that everybody knows. Um, and this one is NPH, which I forget what it stands for, but it doesn't matter because in my head, NPH will forever stand for Neil Patrick Harris. Always. That's no one will ever take that title from him. He's NPH. He's Neil Patrick Harris. And the way that I remember this um, is that if Neil Patrick Harris ever had a threesome with my boyfriend and I, he would have to be in the middle so that the boyfriend didn't get super jealous. And so this is how I remember that NPH is an intermediate uh, acting insulin. So NPH is in the middle. It's a, it's a, like I said, it's an intermediate one uh, insulin and um, it only lasts about half a day. Think what you will about NPH there. Um, so it acts... It, it lasts for about half a day and patients have to take it at night. This is primarily when it's given. And honest to God, the only time that it's really ever come up in the endocrinology suite is when some some patient unfortunately called in because he had ran out of his NPH. And the discussion that was had amongst the endocrinologists was that it was a damn shame that his uh, insurance company refused to pay for anything else because the NPH just really, really is just kind of a terrible um, insulin for type ones. Um, it's something akin to like, well, if his insurance company won't pay for a car, I guess we'll just have to give him a horse and buggy. Um, that's kind of how the endocrinologists look at it. So um, I don't know. NPH is just a really old, really not a great medication. So just really don't use it. But for PANS purposes, know that it is the one in the middle. Uh, all right. Very last one um, are, is the long-acting insulin. Um, and these, uh, again, the the brand names start with L's, which is, the, honest God, the only way that I had even remembered, um, or that's how I categorized that, because the long insulin started with L. So you have Lantus and Levomir. Um, those are the those are the brand names. Um, generic names, honest to God, sound like something they should be out of a J.R.R. Tolkien book. So for those of you who aren't as nerdy as I am, that was a Lord of the Reference um Lord of the Rings reference. Um, so anyway, so Lantus and Levemere, um, uh, 
that's the brand names. Generic names are, again, Lord of the Rings references. Glargine in Bezaglard. Oh, sweet Bezaglard. Nobody calls it that in the real world. Everybody calls it either Lantis or Levomir. Again, both of them start with L's. Um, so that means it's the long-acting insulin. Um, and this is a stuff that it, we also call, call it like a basal insulin. Um, and that's because it's long-acting. So like it's the base layer. Um, and this, um, similar to NPH, is taken once at night. But the nice thing about the Lantus and Levomir, Glargine, Basaglar, is because um, – uh, it can last kind of sort of up to 24 hours, but like really and truly it's only 18 to 22. So the even even this long-acting basal insulin isn't super great, um, but again, we're in pants world here, so um, I'm just kind of going to leave it at that. Um, let's see. I don't think I have anything else to say other than Lantus and Levomir only work in the fasted state. I guess maybe that's kind of like good info to know. So that's why we give them at night because most people aren't eating in the middle of their nighttime sleeping. Like most people don't sleep eat. Although, man, what a terrible thing or good, I guess, depending. Um, so anyway, that's, so that's why we give these kind of longer acting insulins at night because they only work in the fasted state. So that's, um, that's why we take them right before bed. Um, all right, guys. Uh, I think that's everything that we've done. I think that's what we need to cover for type 1 diabetes. Oh, my God. We did it. So that'll do it for type 1 diabetes. Uh, thanks, everyone, who's made it this far uh, and sticking with me. Um, I hope you learned lots of good information, and I hope it's helpful on the pants if they decide to ask a question about it. Um, stay tuned because, of course, there will be uh, an entire separate episode dedicated to type 2 diabetes, and we'll go over everything that the pants wants us to know, but um, again, I'll, I'll have a lot more uh, real-world pearls from my endocrinology rotation. Essentially, like the title suggests, it will be things that the endocrinologist wishes you knew about type 2 diabetes. So I hope it should be really, really informative, not just for getting through your boards, um, but again, also for maybe anybody who's out there and practicing and wants to be just a decent... Um, sharpen their knowledge um, uh, from the primary care side of uh, type 2 diabetes. So um, that's coming up uh, in a different one. Um, finally, I'm going to end with uh, a hilarious update. I was just sharing with my boyfriend about um, how I remembered that NPH is the insulin in the middle. And as I shared that with him, perhaps you, some of you listeners, um, may be as good of critical thinkers as my boyfriend was um, and realized that Neil Patrick Harris is gay and is married um, to a man. And so if uh, Neil Patrick Harris were in the middle of a threesome with my boyfriend and I, uh, my boyfriend probably wouldn't be the one who was getting jealous. Uh, that would probably be a me. I would probably be jealous. Uh, so that was a good self-own uh, on that one. But you know what? I'm leaving it in. I'm leaving it in. This is uh, this is who, this is how you, this is who you get. This is who I am. Uh, so anyway, just a, a good uh, a, a good uh, way to end the show. You know, threesomes, man. Good way to end the show. Uh, all right, guys. Thanks again, and uh, see you next time. <laughs>